Modern is predictable, they've seen it happen. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Today, producer Noon Sada has a story for us about my personal favorite way to wake up in the morning. I just chugged one before coming in front of the mic, actually. <laughs> and it's a story about coffee. We've covered coffee on the show before. Longtime Kerning Cultures listeners might even hear a familiar voice in this episode. But today, we wanted to explore coffee not as the drink, but through the ways in which it ties with history, culture, and religion in all of our lives. Noon spoke with three different people for today's episode, each of whom have a very different connection to coffee. But to start, the thing that got Noon interested in this story in the first place was this connection between coffee and Sufism, a more mystical interpretation and tradition in Islam. There are quite a few variations of the story behind the whole Sufi coffee connection throughout history. One version talks about how this Sufi cleric was traveling through Ethiopia and he saw some birds behaving strangely after eating some uh, berries off a plant. So then he tried the berries himself and noticed that their ability to kind of um, to keep him alert. Another version of this connection is about a Sufi shepherd who noticed that um, his goats, after eating the berries, had the same effect on them. So whichever it was, um, sometime between the 13th and uh, 16th century, Sufi clerics in Yemen, after discovering uh, coffee's effect, drank it as a stimulant to keep them awake and alert into the night during dhikr. Uh, Dhikr in this instance is an act of worship in Sufi prayer through dancing, spinning, and or loud repetitive chanting, often inducing a meditative state. And so the first person that Noon wanted to speak to for this story was somebody who could tell us more about the origins of coffee and Sufism. Start by telling me, what's your name? (laughs) My name is Abdullah. This is what I go by currently, and I I assume from now on. But I've had a lot of names throughout my life, actually. He's an interesting, Um, very interesting guy, has uh, one of the most complicated, complex and layered backgrounds I have ever, (laughs) I had ever heard. So my my name on my birth certificate is Eric David Rothman. And then when I was a teenager, my father told me that he wanted to name me Ezekiel. And that he sort of lost that argument with my mom. And so from then on, from like high school all the way through college and the first part of my career life, up until becoming Muslim, I was Ezekiel. And then when I became Muslim, I was given the name Abdullah by the the sheikh that I made my shahada with. So for simplicity's sake, we'll go with Abdullah. So Abdullah is a 44-year-old father of three, born and raised in Seattle in the northwest of the United States. At the beginning of the interview, he takes me into his kitchen. Um, it kind of looks like a, a, a chemist's lab. It does look like a... He's preparing a cup of coffee. And he opens up the pantry, like his uh, the, the, the cabinet in the kitchen. And there's like bags upon bags upon bags of coffee. To me, they all look exactly the same. But they're, they're beans from... 16 different countries, I think. I believe he had 16 different countries. And and that wasn't even the most uh, amazing part. He has the most impressive selection of gadgets that, that I've ever come across as far as coffee is concerned. I mean, it was incredible. 
Yeah, so this is a there. filter. It's a metal. Okay. It's a metal like um, disc. Okay. But then I put a a cotton filter around it that okay. that's changeable. Okay. But you kind of need to keep it wet. And this brew that he's about to make with me standing in his kitchen is this whole lengthy process involving burners and measuring cups and scales and homemade grinders. This is the part that's a little precarious because I it's all, it's all glass and you yeah. know metal. And now I'm pulling on this thing that has a spring and sometimes it pops down like that. He's got all the, like, high-end stuff, but he's also got a bunch of antique roasters from his travels with these ornate etchings as well as some homemade gadgets that he's built himself. I built them, yeah, three roasters that I built myself. And I, and I have this, like, uh, console to control them, to control the heat and the air that I built out of, like, uh, different electrical... How does one learn how to build a coffee roaster? The internet. <laughs> When Abdullah moved to the UAE, he couldn't find good quality coffee. So he decided the only reasonable solution was to build his own roaster, using this 1970s popper that he found off of eBay. By this point, we've been standing at the kitchen counter for quite a while. So we make our way through the house, coffee in hand, to the kids' room. They had just moved in, so there were lots of cardboard boxes laying around. Abdullah sits across from me. He's a tall man broad shoulders. He sits back, holding his coffee protectively in his hand. He's wearing khaki slacks, a fitted blue polo shirt, and he has this full mane of brown curls, brown circle-rimmed glasses. I, I wouldn't identify as a hipster, but um, I'm sure some people would identify Your me that. glasses are very hipster, Abdullah. <laughs> okay. Coffee to Abdullah is a lot more than a drink. It's a lot more than that buzz to just get you through the day. In fact, to Abdullah, coffee, the drink, the bean, the cultivation, the origin, it's all part of what he believes is recognizing one's path to true spiritual enlightenment. So if somebody does anything with, a, a, with an amount of consciousness and awareness and intention, then it can elevate that experience and it can become a spiritual uh, experience and therefore a spiritual vehicle for connecting to God. For me, everything's spiritual, um, and, and coffee, ha- not only is there this essence of it in, in and of itself, but the history to it is spiritual. But in the process itself, like just even that appreciation for the essence of the coffee versus this dead coffee bean, right? This dead coffee bean Abdullah is describing is the coffee you often find in coffee shops, where the bean is over-roasted to allow for a longer shelf life. Right. And so for me... That's such a, um, a key factor for when we talk about spirituality, we're talking about the unseen essence of something, right? That's re- literally what the word spirit means. And, and it's that essence that really makes something alive and it makes it what it is. So if you were to- This type of spiritual awareness was ingrained in Abdullah early on in his life. He traveled around the world in order to gain a sense of spiritual understanding. His journeys took him to Jamaica. I sort of was involved in like Rastafarian culture and and, and the spiritual tradition, not the sort of like Bob Marley and smoking weed type of thing. A commune on a hill outside of Santa Cruz, California. In a Hindu community studying yoga and studying with this this guy, Baba Haridas, this, this guru who hadn't spoken for 40 years and taught on a chalkboard. Palestine and Israel. Um, and I lived with Jewish community, I lived with Muslims, and I lived with the black Hebrew Israelite community. 
He also lived with Yemeni Jews and was a shepherd for seven months after then moving to East Asia to live with a Buddhist monk in the jungles of central Thailand. For the past 15 years, Abdullah has woken up at 3 a.m. to pray and do dhikr, that spiritual practice uh, common in Islam that I mentioned earlier. So I, I use uh, beads and, I, and I'm in a sort of saying things that get me into a state of remembrance, but then really trying to cultivate a place of, pre- a state of presence. What I'm saying, I'm not saying anything out loud, it's in my heart. Okay. But this, there is a sound of the beads because I use this um, a thousand beads strand. And so when I'm, and, and I'm doing it sort of fast, and so it makes a kiss, 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 kiss sound. And it's in the mid, in this middle of the night, which is considered this sacred time when the sakina is like closer to the earth, meaning like sort of you're able to ac- access this connection to God uh, easier because there's this closer connection in this in the middle of the night, and it's sort of you know the idea is everyone else is asleep and you're there alone with you and your Lord. And for Abdullah, coffee and its enjoyment, its appreciation, is somehow a manifestation of the divine. I don't want to drink, I don't want to find the one coffee that I like and stick to it. I literally specifically want, I want a fruity one on this day. I want an Ethiopian one on this day. I want a Guatemalan because I want to revel in the the beauty of diversity. All that diversity and all that engagement is is a dhikr. It's a way of remembering the oneness, remembering the truth. While Abdullah's ritual with coffee has largely been self-discovery and journey, there have been skeptics along the way. Abdullah is married to Isra, a Sudanese-American who comes from a Sufi family. Sufism is extremely common in Sudan. It actually has one of the largest Sufi communities around the world. And it was through Isra that Abdullah began to live and learn amongst the Sufis. It was when I sort of had a a family, like when when my wife and I had a home where I was like, oh, I... I'm going to buy some coffee equipment to make coffee at home is when it sort of deepened in, into this personal connection. And it was sort of simultaneously, I didn't even sort of realize at that time because I was now Muslim, but I, didn't, I wasn't aware of the, the connection there. So one of the first years of being married, within the first year of being married to my wife, she, I was getting more and more into the coffee. And so I, I was doing all this research and I was into buying my first espresso machine because now we had a home, you know, and, you know, you get married and you get, you have a registry and you get like kitchen things, right? And so I was like, oh, I want to get a coffee maker. I've never had that. So I, I had to get the best and I did all this research. And so I got into the making of coffee. And so she was seeing that I was spending a lot of time with this, right? And so she started getting worried because in her orientation to Islam, attachment to anything is like a nafs thing. You're, you get attached, you're supposed to break these attachments, you know? So his wife, Isra, calls up her Sufi sheikh, or her religious teacher or mentor, for guidance. And she's convinced that she, he's going to sort of say, like, he shouldn't do that, right? And so he gives her this whole dars, this whole lesson on the coffee bean and bun and the, and the, the spiritual reality of coffee. And he starts saying, like, you know, coffee is the blessed bean and it's the only seed other than the date seed, which we know is, you know, revered within Islam in the Prophet's time 
Coffee bean, as well as the date seed, have this line down the middle. Sufis believe that that line is spiritually significant, that it represents alif, which is the first letter of the Arabic alphabet. Which is basically like a one, and it's also connected to like when you say the shahada. Shahada, the declaration of faith. You put your one finger in the up to represent tawheed, or the unity, the oneness of God. And so this... Uh, he starts telling her that this coffee bean has an, a secret to it, a spiritual secret, keeps away the devil, it keeps away shaitan, and that not only is it good to drink, that you should actually keep the coffee bean in your house, and you should keep some in your cupboard because it will keep shaitan away. And he said, not only should you be okay with Abdullah drinking coffee, but you should sit with him and enjoy a cup of coffee every once in a while. <laughs> And so I'm like, yes, you know. People just say, you won that argument. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you kept that coffee machine. <laughs> right. Kept it, and it was like, from then on, I was like, hey, this is, this is legit. I get, I get to do this. And, and the thing is, it came with the package. It came with him. So I had to, you know, I had to accept it. This is Isra, Abdullah's wife. And his gadgets and everything. I mean, it's, it's a lot. It takes up room in the house. I still remember once his dad came to stay with us and he told him, all I need in the morning is a cup of coffee. And so my husband, before leaving to work, he printed out literally and stapled three pages with 32 steps of how to make a cup of coffee. And his dad wakes up in the morning and he sees the paper and he starts laughing. He's like, I'm going to Wegmans to get like Nescafe to oh, make no. a cup of coffee. Oh, no. And he's like, are you serious? You wrote me 32 steps to make a cup of coffee. And he thought it was totally normal. He's like, here's And although Abdullah has invested himself entirely and completely and independently to the craft, coffee and the sort of social culture around it has historically been a communal activity. You know, when you think of coffee, you think of people coming together in these coffee houses. Um, and... What happened is that there's this this thing of people together connecting while they drink coffee. So it's this ritual of sitting with one another, sipping the coffee, and having conversation heart to heart and coming up with ideas and reflecting the experience of being human in the other. And this is a very, very central aspect to Islam and, and therefore to to, to Sufism, which is the concept of suhbah, which is companionship. And it's not just to be comfortable with one another. In the second chapter of our story, we want to explore coffee and its connection to one woman's meaning of culture, tradition, and home. So the second interview was with a woman named Raya Khalfan al-Zahiri, and she describes herself as the UAE's foremost expert on coffee. And she was so difficult to get a hold of. I, I used to work as a producer at a TV station where one of my roles was to identify guests to bring on to the talk show. And I'm not joking when I tell you, I found it easier to bring on presidents of countries onto the program than getting a hold of Raya Khalfan al-Zahiri. 
And so anyways, Raya told me, I live in Al Ayn, and I said to her, do you ever come out to Abu Dhabi? She said, ah, no, I don't. Um, but I live on a farm in, in Al Ayn, and you're welcome to come over here. I have a nice setup of uh, my coffee setup. I'll make a nice cup of a pot of coffee for you and we can talk for as long as you'd like. So I said, okay, I've never, I've actually never been out to the farms of Al Ayn, so I thought it would be quite exciting. I brought along a translator and uh, our amazing Kerning Cultures intern, Dima, and we we drive and it's a little less than 150 kilometers away from where I live. I'm going to just record it as we're doing this. It's just because I want to get some of this. Like, so it's about a two hour drive. And so I drive out and all I see is like flat desert land. It's supposed to rain today, so we're kind of lucky there's some sun. We drive up and, and she had sent me a Google uh, location of where where she where where to go to and it turned out to be a, a bakala which is like a, a local a local store like the little, little um, bodegas nice and still out here isn't it so um, I uh, I parked at the at the store and she said you know once you arrive give me a call and my driver will come out and you'll you'll follow him to where my house is so I'm sitting there in front of this bodega and there are like children running around barefoot playing tag or whatever they're playing and the air is so crisp and um and and all i could think of is have i been transported back to sudan because it looks exactly and felt exactly like i was back home her driver finally arrived and we follow him down to the house and her house is like deeper in like uh, into the neighborhood and we get to her home, uh, the gate opens, and you drive into her, uh, I guess, driveway. So you think it's best to keep our masks on around her since I she's think, an older I think, woman? I don't know, you know, I, we can ask her when we get up. Yeah, we sure. There, you know? And there's a, a goat, uh, kind of <laughs> a couple of goats wandering around. And there's Raya greeting us at the door. When we first spoke over the phone, she told me she was the UAE's foremost expert in coffee. And the room she welcomed us into may have been all the proof that we needed to back up that statement. This place is amazing. There were coffee mementos everywhere. There was this enormous uh, wall-to-wall wallpaper of a timeline of coffee's history. Teapots adorned every shelf. Hundreds of books of poetry and history lined the walls at either end of the room. Uh, well, my name is Raya Al-Dahiri. Raya is an anthropologist and a researcher. I deal with the heritage and culture. So Raya actually speaks English fairly well. My translator was thrown off a bit. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> okay, let's make another deal. If you speak in English, I translate in Arabic. No, 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 Raya is a small statured woman, 75 years old, maybe 5'4", but her voice and her laugh are hearty and larger than life. As I begin to ask her about coffee, Raya can't help but take us throughout her past, all the way to her childhood and to memories of her grandmother. She mentions her grandmother throughout this interview. She was connected to her in such a profound, loving way. And every time Raya mentions her grandmother, her entire demeanor softens and she smiles really warmly. She used to be uh, so soft in her and she was... Tall, elegant. She was uh, the head of the neighborhood in a way. And her grandmother instilled in Raya a passion she has nurtured and held on to for the past seven decades, the art of coffee. For Raya, coffee, the drink itself, carries a history and tradition so sacred and so personal that it propels her into poetry. 
almost a whimsical song, eyes closed behind her glasses, swaying, a look of sheer happiness. Raya told us about this memory she had from when she was about six or seven years old of seeing her grandmother in front of the fire, grinding and roasting coffee beans in a white dress against the black night sky. The scene is so beautiful. Like, it's beautiful in a way that it's beyond description. She said, the fire was in front of the grandma. The grandma was wearing white. She was doing her grinding of the coffee. And there were, around the fire, Cooper plates. And these plates were reflecting the fire lights. And it looked like gold for her. It looked like something so pretty compared to a vision of a child, to see all that prettiness. And that's where that spark of the passion for coffee started. That night was truly a memorable moment for her, one she remembers so vividly and has stayed with her, shepherding her through her life. She, she used to be a companion for her grandma since that day. And she used to see her grandma and she used to feel it was a symphonic music that was played because every time she holds a cup, she holds a, an item to put along with the, like from the herbs and spices to put in the coffee, moving the liquid and pouring it to somewhere else. That whole thing was a music within her heart, watching it and feeling it. She used to bother her grandma with a lot of questions while she's doing the coffee. That um, And she, she wanted to do things, she wanted to try things. And her grandma used to try a trick, but I don't think it worked, I mean, we'll check that out later. She used to give her a coffee and tell her to clean it up from anything that's within the coffee, uh, just to keep her busy. <laughs> no, no, it did not work. It only kept little Gaia more persistent, determined to learn absolutely everything she could about this magical process she had fallen in love with. And this age-old process of making coffee in an Emirati home is all about atmosphere, tradition, and lots and lots of time. While grinding, there's usually poetry being recited, either for memorization or original works, like the poem Raya performed for us. Raya is eager to show us the process that begins by roasting beans over the fire. Okay, so the, the coffee beans have a shell kind of thing to protect it from being damaged. And she's going to show us what's going to happen with these. Um, she then pours the coffee beans into a wooden box that she shakes back and forth, which both cools down the beans to stop them from overcooking and also separates the shells from the bean. She then brings the hot water. Needless to say, we were all pretty excited. Even Hibar, our translator, who's not a huge coffee fan, was eager to try. There was never a time that someone presented me a cup of coffee and I wanted it. I took it out of politeness. And now, like, I'm dying to try this coffee. <laughs> Your first real cup of coffee. She excitedly tells us to gather around and see, an important step not to be missed. She is showing us the moment to look out for, when the bubbles in the liquid reach the right color. Once the coffee reaches a golden color, she removes it from the fire. And you wait. Two minutes. This is probably the 3,000th pot of coffee that Rai has ever made in her lifetime. But her excitement and thrill at showing us each meticulous step is as if she's witnessing the magic for the first time. She finds this connection to coffee so enthralling, so important. She wrote a book on it called uh, Voice of Rashad, History and Coffee Maker. So Rashad is 
from the Arabic word rusht, which means to lead or guide. And in the past, travelers used to use the rashad as a warning sound to alert the town of any imminent danger. But the other purpose of the rashad... The best excellent coffee maker used to be the one who wakes up earlier than the other coffee expert to make sure that she's the one who's making that noise. Raya likens the sounds to church bells. So when people wake up for the Fajr prayer and the wake-up call, um, and that's the phrase that she used, it's a wake-up call. So they would say, we woke up on the voice of the rashad of of that family. A source of pride amongst the community was to say, I woke up to the sound of so-and-so's rashad. So the woman who prepared the coffee has to take the first uh, drink to make sure that it's the right with everything, with the ingredients, with everything provided. She pours the golden-colored coffee from her grandmother's coffee pot. How did it taste? It tastes nice. <laughs> she didn't close her eyes. So I think no, 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 no. I closed my eyes. <laughs> I, I did. I smell it and I closed my eyes. <laughs> when you take a sip of coffee, you're not supposed to drink it immediately and swallow it. You're supposed to have that conversation between the taste and the smell and the flavors around you before you actually swallow it. Yeah, she's calling the, the, the fusion of it in the mouth a conversation, A conversation. Right? Yeah. It's... This is an art. Even drinking it now is an art. This is hard. (laughs) Raising your standards. It's a a, a pleasure. (laughs) At this point, Raya urges us to sit down as guests, not as interviewers. We have to actually go Ah, and sit down. We have to start acting up like guests and sitting. Okay, let's let's make our way over there. Let's play. Does she want us to sit anywhere in particular? (laughs) She wants to grind some coffee using the rashad. She sits, heels tucked in on the ground, just like this, twice a day, head bowed. She begins. Every home has a different sound. Her home, her digga, is just like her grandmother's. Raya does this, eyes closed, smiling. We pause the recording at Rai's insistence that we enjoy the coffee, that we are in the moment, that we are her guests. And it almost seemed like the sight of her beaming face at the coffee, its deep aroma, and our enjoyment, it was as if Raya was once again making her first cup at eight years old, when her grandmother finally allowed her to make and serve her first coffee. Coffee in Emirati households isn't a drink to quench the thirst. That's why you don't fill the cup. Instead, it's meant to be drunk in enjoyment, accompanied by poetry, in conversation, in negotiations, in prospective marriage and arrangements. And for Raya, its history and its entry into her society intertwines with her idea of family, heritage, identity, and nationalism, and the past that she so clearly remembers. She knows that with development, everything has to change, and there, are, there will be some drop-offs. And a lot of people no longer gather in the morning, for example, to have the coffee. So she understands that change. And she says it's such a shame and a loss because it's a culture, it's a, it's a habit, it's a, it's a belief. It's not just a cup of coffee, it's a heritage. It's a, it's a, for her, it's, it's something really big and she doesn't want to think about it. And she says it's such a shame that we might be losing um, how to do it properly by the generations coming. As we sit in Raya's living room, surrounded by coffee pots, spices and family portraits, we take a moment to smell the coffee. What does it smell to you? I think it smells like home. Yes, yeah, Salam. Ajmal wasf smerte. 
smell like home and no place like home. For our last chapter, our story takes us to Oakland, California, by way of Yemen, where one man sought to bring together his past, his present, and parts of his identity, all with the help of a coffee bean. My full name is Mukhtar Faisal Hamoud Nashid Yahya Muhammad Muhammad Hadi Saleh Al-Khanchali. That's my name. Mukhtar is a Yemeni-American entrepreneur in specialty coffee. He lives in Oakland, California. We spoke via Zoom for this interview. He's sitting in his office, which is essentially a warehouse. High ceilings, large windows, a lot of light. Mukhtar is a conduit, so to speak, between coffee farmers in Yemen and the rest of the world. He lives, breathes, and absolutely adores all things coffee. Kenyan coffees typically have a very green apple, very citrus, bright flavor to it. Coffees from Guatemala tend to be more chocolate. Brazil, a lot of nuts, peanuts, you know, walnuts. Panama has this very special variety called Gesha. Yemen coffees are very unique because... He knows his stuff, and so he gives us a quick tour of his office warehouse, phone in hand. So yeah, when you make coffees, it's not so like technical. You just got to make sure you have the right water-coffee ratio. And you see racks and racks of coffee beans, equipment, and things I can't even recognize. And it was specifically through discovering coffee that Mukhtar explored and connected with parts of his identity, pages of his past, and the deep connection to the idea of home. Mukhtar, like many people who identify with this classification of third culture, has always straddled between two identities. I have my family's Yemeni heritage, our history, our traditions, our culture and food, music. But... I also love hip hop and I love, you know, pop culture and movies and all these things and, you know, growing up, growing up here. And so sometimes it was hard growing up to figure out where do I belong and, you know, am I Yemeni, am I American? And sometimes I don't, I didn't feel like I belonged in either. As a Sudanese American myself, I understand the sentiment so well. And for Mukhtar, this feeling of not quite fitting in here or there carried through some of the more complicated and sensitive times in U.S. history. After September 11th, it was very difficult because now suddenly you're like this boogeyman and people are looking at you as a quote-unquote enemy. And the images that are portrayed about your people and culture are not positive. There is no reference of Yemen anywhere. The only reference of Yemen besides, you know, desert and Al-Qaeda and all these things was one reference in this Friends episode. Hi. I need a fake ticket to Yemen. <laughs> one ticket to Yemen? Oh, no, 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 no. When Chandler I Bing just... has to, like, escape Janice, and he, he says he's going to go to Yemen, <laughs> some random country. No one meant to really remembers it, but every Yemeni knows that episode. Well, then I guess I'm going to Yemen. <laughs> I'm going to Yemen! <laughs> Mukhtar's parents, for fear that he would mix with the wrong crowd and go down the wrong path, decided to send him to Yemen for a year to live with his grandfather. I hated it. I was, I was like, you know, what am I doing? I was just like, this, do I pack water with me? Like, I didn't even know what Yemen was like. I'm a 14-year-old kid in high school. <laughs> it was very, very strange. It's interesting, that year felt like 10 years. It felt like I went into the, the, um, the wardrobe from Narnia. I just kind of like went into this place for like a whole lifetime. What I did was like an, I would go and, you know, and, and go to 
deal with tribal disputes with my grandfather. I would write these like treaties. I would go buy like, you know, um, truckloads of like stones and rocks for our house that we were building. I, I was very like mature for the age. I had a lot of responsibility. But when he returned back to the U.S., reality sunk in. Freshman year of high school, 50 cents in the club just came out. And so that duality of his character, coupled with just this overall strangeness of preteens and navigating one's identity, Mukhtar was, yet again, back to balancing and trying to make sense of who he was and where he fit. And it wasn't until college that Mukhtar's dual identities would finally converge. I did not drink coffee seven years ago. I would drink that in college to stay up for exams, you know, to, to jam, you know, to study longer or drive late nights, but I didn't really like it. And my first kind of like aha moment was I, I found out about Yemen's coffee history. Despite the alarming fact that most Yemenis don't drink coffee. Like only 15% of coffee is consumed in Yemen. Yemen has a long-standing relationship with coffee. The high elevations of, of its landscapes and its unique microclimate makes it fertile ground for growing some of the world's most sought-after coffee beans. So the Arab tribes there live on these high mountaintops for defensive purposes, and they forced the mountain to grow their produce by making these very beautiful, lush terraces that grow things that they need to survive, and some of those are coffee. And because of that, the coffees in Yemen are under a lot of stress. They don't have a lot of water, and they produce very vibrant flavors. After the Ottoman Turks occupied Yemen, coffee's popularity spread with the empire. The beans generally were exported from the southwestern part of Yemen, the port city of Mocha. Yes, like the drink. In fact, the coffee from that region took on the name of the port. And with that, the world was introduced to and fell in love with coffee. For 200 years, almost Yemen had a, a complete monopoly on coffee. And I was just enthralled with this history of coffee and how like when coffee came from Yemen to Europe, in London, Vienna, you know, Paris, people before coffee would drink alcohol and that's kind of all they did. Discovering Yemen's role in coffee was almost the perfect push Mukhtar needed in order to once again decide to visit his homeland and explore what this could mean for him professionally. Okay, we're here today in the Bura. It's one of the most famous coffee growing regions in Yemen. So I would go to these uh, villages and I, I went to about, I went to 32 different regions across Yemen. I would go to these places I would read about and I would go and I would look for coffee. He told me this is going to be one of the hardest hikes of my life and he was not kidding. A lot of these places, bumpy roads and some of them you had to, you can't even drive, you had to get off the car and then hike the rest of the, the journey to this mountain village. And unfortunately cars can't come over here so the only way to go up is to hike with all of our luggage bags so and uh, use a few donkeys, a donkey over here. Otherwise, you can't go up. In search for the best coffee, sometimes you have to sacrifice something. But I told me, so here we are. Hopefully, see you guys on the top. For me, that was probably the, the most incredible part of my life. It was so the unknown. And so everywhere Mukhtar went, he felt this generosity, this eagerness to welcome him, to embrace him. He was telling me that in the villages he would visit, they would have these books. Like these giant books that you sign in and you write like memories or notes. They would go into lines, people, and, and I remember seeing, seeing this line formation. I asked my friends, like, what are they doing? He said, oh, they're doing a lottery system to see who gets to host you because everybody wants you to be, the, wants to be your host. 
And Mukhtar, as this newcomer, but not really, found himself ideally situated to leverage these two, his two identities, which in the past were contradictory or in opposition to one another. He actually made them work as he delved deeper and learned more about the people and the coffee. And that's when I, it was just, everything kind of clicked and I kind of felt this is where my past, you know, culture and my identity and my future, everything kind of fit together. And so Mukhtar flourished. He completely immersed himself amongst the Yemeni coffee growers, observed the cultivation, learned the scents, the taste, the techniques, the roasts, everything. I felt even more a sense of like responsibility. You know, I need to, I hope I can do something to help them or what, I don't know what I can do. So I tried to never promise things like, oh, you know, I was always under promise. And in that first trip, I just told them I'm doing a report. He formed relationships with farmers. He learned how to measure rainfalls, hiked, slept on mountains, observed their practices, listened to their songs, poems, and tales of their ancestors. He was determined to soak it all in and knew that if he could just get farmers to elevate the quality of their beans, they'd make more money and most importantly, embrace coffee growing again. And it worked. And now it is a story of adventure, war, and the search for the perfect cup of coffee. You may not be thinking about what it took to get those beans from crop to cup, but the man you're about to hear from, sure did. His story is now being told in a new book by celebrated author Dave Eggers. Here's the moment of truth. We're officially trying the $16 cup of coffee. It is absolutely worth it. Just do it. It's definitely a good cup of coffee. It's a great cup of coffee. Mukhtar's story and his coffee were a hit back in the U.S., and his beans could soon be found in numerous roasters across the country. His coffee is priced between $4.25 and $20. And so what I'm trying to do is let's go back to the way coffee was produced. People were paid fair. Coffee was known where it came from. It was really, uh, there was a lot of transparency. And coffee was not a dollar a cup. For some reason, coffee, we've been programmed to think it's a cheap thing. It can't be like everything else we can pay. We can pay for like really expensive headphones. <laughs> you know, we can pay for so many different things, you know, but coffee, I'm trying to educate people and let them, let them know that this is a different type of coffee. This is the coffee that... And there's a lot that goes into the coffee that Mukhtar exports. If we try to decipher how many hands were involved in the process of seed to table... I think it's 20 pairs of hands. That's the number. 20 pairs of hands. So much work. Yeah, it's kind of mind-boggling to think about it. Like, I don't know that many things in the world that has that many people who involved along the route before it gets to a consumer. And this is what Mukhtar really stresses, where he feels super strong about. If you just purchase coffee that was ethically sourced every day, first of all, it would taste much better. But that cup that you pay, you know, a little bit more per, per cup, it will have a huge ripple effect and it would impact somebody in Kenya and Yemen and in Guatemala. You know, it's about traceability and about all paying people fair wages and understanding your beverage in a more intimate way. And for Mukhtar, that is a part of what he's striving to do with his beans. And I think we're going back to coffee as a, as a social conduit, as a, a drink to build community. And so that's kind of my goal. And I have this thing I always say, the, the shortest distance between two people is a cup of coffee. You can see a picture of somebody. They can be in Africa. They could be in China. They can be in SF. And you know exactly what they're doing. They're having a really dope conversation. <laughs> it's a universal experience. It's a, it's a place where we build community. It's a place where we uh, to really slow down and to have intimate moments with each other and to reconnect and build. And I think that... In the world we live in, we don't have enough of those spaces. And so coffee, it's great, 
as a flavor, as a drink. It helps us get through the day, but coffee won't taste as good as it would with someone next to you. This episode was produced by Noon Saleh with editorial support from Alex Atak, Dana Balut, Zaina Duidar, and Nadine Shakir. Fact-checking by Dina Salem, sound design by Alex Atak, and mixing by Mohamed Khayzat. Bella Ibrahim is our marketing director, and Kerning Cultures is a production of the Kerning Cultures Network. Thank you to everybody who spoke to us for this story. Abdullah Rothman, Isra Bani, Ghaya Khalfan al-Zahiri, Mukhtar al-Khanshali, and to Jonathan Davis for helping us record Mukhtar's interview in Oakland. And if you want to hear more about Mukhtar's story, we actually produced an episode with him a couple of years ago. Scroll back in the Kerning Culture show feed to April 2017. The episode is called Serious Jolt, and it's one of my personal favorites. If you liked what you heard here today, please take a quick second and rate us on whatever podcast app you're listening to us on. It really helps boost our rankings and lets other listeners find out about these stories. Thank you. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you.